Welcome to Bounce Back Stronger, the podcast that explores ways to find peace and purpose after difficulty. I'm your host, Donna Ferris, and today we have international meditation teacher, author, and wellness influencer, Sharon Salzberg with us. A little bit about Sharon. Sharon Salzberg is a meditation pioneer, world-renowned teacher, and New York Times bestselling author. She is among the first to bring mindfulness and loving-kindness meditation to mainstream American culture nearly 50 years ago, inspiring generations of meditation teachers and wellness influencers. Sharon is the co-founder of Insight Meditation Society and the author of 13 books, including the New York Times bestseller Real Happiness, now in its second edition, and her seminal work, Loving Kindness, Sharon's podcast, The Meta Hour, has amassed 6 million downloads and features interviews with thought leaders from the mindfulness movement and beyond. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us on Bounce Back Stronger. I'm so honored to have you on the podcast. I'm really delighted to be with you. Thank you so much. We met in 2018. You were doing a meta workshop with Stephen Cope at Kripalu. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I was able to make meditation a routine practice. And I really appreciate that so very, very much. That's great. I guess we should say meta, M-E-T-T-A. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. loving kindness. Yes. And been reading Faith uh, and looking, you know, going back and rereading it actually. And I think meta was all, meta was also a meditation that drew you in as well as in your journey, you talk about looking at a lot of different types of meditation, taking quite a journey to find uh, that first place that you learned it. And I wonder if you have any insights on why that meditation worked for you as well, because it certainly worked for me. Oh, well, I went to India as a college student. You know, I was 18 years old. I was a junior, actually. And uh, I went with a year of independent study credit in order to study meditation. Like, education was kind of wild and woolly back then. It was a long time ago. And the first meditation I ever did was in the context of an intensive 10-day meditation retreat. It was January 1971. And it was led by S.N. Goenka, who had just left Burma. At that time, and it was basically a mindfulness retreat, mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the body, and so on. And right at the very end, he did a little loving kindness meditation. It was almost a kind of ceremonial way of saying goodbye. And it was all important for me. It was all really uh, vitally important for me. But that last one, I was like really intrigued by. I went, ooh, you know, like, what's that one? Partly because, you know, my my childhood had been very... uh, chaotic, a lot of loss, a lot of change, and and that idea of love, of being almost like, um, it was kind of brought alive for me years later in this movie, Dan in Real Life, where one of the characters says, love is not a feeling, it's an ability. Yeah. And of course, it is a feeling as well, but sort of labeling it as a, a feeling, first of all, it can be way too narrow, but also it almost like leaves it often in the hands of someone else to give to us or take away from us. And if they seem to be taking it away from us, like they die, you know, then it's like there's no love left in our lives. But if it's an ability, it's within us. And other people certainly may foster it and inspire it or threaten it, but ultimately it's ours to tend, to cultivate, to strengthen, to retrieve in, in difficult circumstances. And I think that was, uh, even intuitively, what really struck me about the practice. Yeah, there's an empowerment about it. Yeah. That yeah. if you 
had difficulty finding love. And I, I think I resonated with it too, for that reason. I think I had difficulty finding love and all of the things you talked about uh, certainly led to, I think, me also uh, liking that meditation. It did. It felt so comforting, mm-hmm. I think, compared to some of the others that felt, sometimes I felt so lonely in those meditations. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, and it feels like it almost brings in the, the spiritual a bit too, like you're not alone in that, it, you know, it's almost a chanting of sorts, like the mantras. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate it. I think it, it resonates well, and I, hopefully we'll get a chance to do that together towards yeah, the end of, sure. of our time. So, you came out with a new book. Uh, I think you did two books this year, actually, I right? I did two books this year. <laughs> so, so inspiring. The first one was Real Life, is that Real right? Real Life, yeah. That came yeah. out last April. Yeah, and you're doing some events around that, I think, as well, if, if I'm correct. Yeah, well. I, I haven't been on an airplane since I think March 4th, 2020, which is why I was able to write two books. And so all the events I'm doing are basically online. But yeah, I'm, I'm still talking about that as well as the, the next one. The new one, which I'm loving, and I always pick a book every year to give to all my friends and family. And, and this year, it's it's your book, Finding Your Way, which is a slightly different format. And maybe tell us a little bit about that. It, it's a, for, I think it's for me, I'm a, I do a little bit of social media. Uh, I, I find it a very memeable book. Uh, and I, I don't Thank know if that you. was the intent. <laughs> I was like, I use it a lot. Yeah. So basically, uh, back to March 2020, I taught at a place in New York City and an editor from Publishing House asked to meet me for lunch. So we stayed in the cafe of that place. And in teaching, I could see New York was getting really bad. People were getting sick. People's parents were getting sick. Anxiety was through the roof. And I met with this editor and she proposed what we were calling a gift book to me, a small illustrated book. The idea is that you could open it up to any page and maybe there'd be something relevant to you, to your life. So very short little nuggets in, in mm-hmm. you know, lots of paragraphs. And I said, I don't think so. You know, it's not really my thing. And she said, no, think about it. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh is very venerable. A Vietnamese teacher said he's done two. Pema Chodron's done one. And the whole time I was thinking, I don't think so. And I also thought, yeah, this is really frank. I thought these tables are very small. She's sitting very close to me. You know, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Really. I don't want to get sick. Maybe I should go up to Barry, Mass, where I have a house next door to the retreat center I co-founded in 1976. I thought, I'll go up to Barry for two weeks and ride it out until it's over. So it was during that lunch, I decided to leave New York and mm-hmm. come back up to Barry. And I did. I, I left a few days later. And of course, I was here for months. And I don't know, months later, I woke up and I thought of her and that lunch. And I thought, you know, she could have been right. Like attention span is not very strong right now. Mm-hmm. You know, so many people are living in upheaval and shattered expectations and all these changes. And that maybe it is a great form for this time. And so I called her and said, are you still interested? And she was. So thankful. The first quote, do the good in front of you, even if it feels small. I have to say it got me through a really rough day that I had. I just threw this book in my backpack on the way to work. And that was a mantra for the whole day. You know, it was just a really, really tough day in terms of transition around me. And I needed to be at my best. I didn't want to step outside of myself. And I can't even tell you how important that little phrase was. Doing those little bits of good is is sometimes all we can do, especially if you have a lot of people around us with anxiety and going through difficult times. That's the only thing you can do. And it's really important, I think, if you sit with some very, very uncomfortable feelings like outrage, anger, you know, Mm -hmm. um, the helplessness, 
then translate. It's almost like utilizing that energy instead of being tossed around by it, just channeling it even to one small good deed. And it, it may be in your immediate family. It may be in your workplace. It may be with a friend. It may not be on the world stage, you know, or something grandiose in that way, but it makes a difference. It makes a difference for us. And it certainly makes a difference for the recipient as well. Right. And it's the opposite, right, of what you would normally do. So it's such a aspirational quote. Is very healing. It, it actually yeah. works. You know, it's a very effective, especially I think for that feeling of helplessness, which could be about the world stage. It could be your friend is sick or drinking or whatever it is, you know, and it doesn't mean you don't do anything. But the fact that you can't in one fell swoop solve the problem, you know, I once was with a group of people teaching and I said, I really believe if I were in charge of the universe, it would be a lot better a world. <laughs> Someone in the group challenged me. They said, are you sure? And I thought about it and I said, I am really sure. <laughs> it would be so much better, but guess what? No one's putting me in charge of the universe. And so rather than having that be call for apathy or nihilism, it's just saying, okay, I'm going to do this one thing I can see in front of me. I think that's incredibly profound. And it's, again, empowering. On the back of the book, and I have read the middle, you have a quote, to be truly happy in this world is a revolutionary act. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, in the uh, Buddhist tradition, they have a belief that everybody really wants to be happy and that is happiness in a much deeper sense, not like endlessly feeling pleasure or being happy-go-lucky, but having a sense of belonging, having a sense of being at home somewhere like in this body, in this mind, with one another on this planet. And it's because of ignorance, it's because of being mistaken, having all these often, you know, depending on your background, like lies and distortions fed to you, but where happiness is actually going to be found, that we get confused, that we cause so much suffering for ourselves, suffering for others, but the sheer desire to be happy is rightful. Because if we can combine that desire with wisdom instead of ignorance, we could cut through many obstacles. Sometimes we just look at some of that conditioning. People are taught, not uncommonly, like it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Don't help anybody else because they're not going to help you. And our endless accumulation is going to keep you safe. You won't have to be afraid of anything if you just get more stuff. Yeah or seize control over this person and they will never change they'll never disappoint you or be vengeful don't let go of a grudge ever like go over and over and over and over and over and over and over, <laughs> and over, and over. <laughs> the harm done you know but then if we're paying attention if we're really being mindful we get to look at all that and think really look at what that actually feels like look at the consequences not of having that come up but being lost in it mm -hmm. and then it's the thing opposite you know so many people are taught compassion stupid Gratitude is really stupid. Mm -hmm. You know, if you practice gratitude, you're just being grateful for crumbs. You're going to let everyone take advantage of you. And for this book, actually, I got to talk to researchers and it was so interesting because they said, actually, it's the opposite. If you practice gratitude and it is a practice, some people say, write down three things at night from the day that you're grateful for, things like that. But uh, these researchers said to me, if you practice gratitude, you have a kind of energy. You don't feel so bereft, so exhausted. So you can seek change with some energy. And not only that, people who practice gratitude want to pay it forward. They want to see other people get a break or have something good happen for them. So they really are active, not passive. You know, so we get to see like these myths. And if we can see through them, then we can orient ourselves toward a more true happiness. And that's why it's a revolutionary act. It is. 
some of the things you were alluding to there is identifying what spirituality is to you rather than taking kind of dogma that's out there. Let's try a gratitude practice. You know, my favorite is, and actually from the same day I mentioned whether the earlier quote was so helpful, on that same day I, I have scheduled on my calendar three five-minute gratitude breaks. And I try to do meditation if I can, but sometimes they just pop up and they remind me to be grateful. And it happened to me in that afternoon. My computer was the computer that everybody was seeing because I was hosting the presentation and gratitude popped up. And I was like, I needed that. And it was funny when, you know, they were asking me what one thing I was taking away from the day. And one of my coworkers said, gratitude, right, Donna? And I said, yes, I'm grateful because I needed that. It wasn't necessarily a moment that I was grateful in. But again, it, it was something that I took in from all the things I learned. And I think that's one of the messages I get from your books in general is not just taking it, but internalizing it and figuring out what your spiritual path is. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's, that's very much so. And I like that you have it programmed into your computer. Like a lot of these exercises are not difficult, but they're awfully difficult to remember. Yes. And it's just very, very helpful. And I tell people to do it. I don't know if anybody does, but it is really helpful. You started to go into a little bit of what I learned in Love Your Enemies, which I, again, I apply to work, the idea that everybody wants to be happy. And I think that can be particularly hard with a person that's difficult but it kind of levels the playing field a little bit. Mm-hmm. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that? Because that was a that was an amazing book for me, and I use it a lot at work. Thank you. Well, actually, that book, um, we just heard after all these years, uh, they want to do an audio version of it. So <gasps> that's Bob great. and I are going to read it. Oh, that's great. We just worked out that the contract. Book. Yeah, thank you. In that book, which is called Love Your Enemies, the title went through lots and lots of different changes. And at one point, the title was going to be Love your enemies, it will drive them crazy. <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> Bob had seen in, in front of a church and that kind of placard that's sometimes there with a pithy saying. And, and then somehow the, it will drive them crazy got dropped, which I didn't like. I was actually in England <laughs> at the time and I went to the British office of the publisher to plead with them, please don't drop that, but I didn't win. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of like, it is difficult. It's an exercise. And it doesn't mean that people are executing what they need to do to be happy. You know, there's confusion, there's delusion, there's ignorance, there's attachment, there's fear, there's all kinds of stuff that comes up for us as well as for others that keeps us from having what one of my friends called better aim mm-hmm. toward mm-hmm. happiness. And and uh, it's a reflection that we might do, not to say that behavior is excusable, mm-hmm. but it's kind of understandable. Mm-hmm. You know, and those are very different. It's not really justifying somebody's terrible deeds, for example, but or saying you're not going to try to do anything about them. But there can be a level of understanding that is true. Like uh, one of my friends, one of my colleagues was very fond of saying everyone's just doing the best that they can. And I never liked that. I thought, <laughs> uh, I'm a New Yorker. I don't, I don't get that. You know, like, but it's sort of the, the most uh, palatable form for me was actually from Maya Angelou, who said, and this is not a perfect quote because it's usually mm-hmm. misquoted, something like, when you know better, you do better. And it's because we simply don't. People believe that disconnection is the way to be safe. You know, they're all alone in this universe and that it doesn't matter who they trample or whatever. And you can sense that sometimes. And so it doesn't mean you have to like them, but you can have that kind of sensibility. It turns the tables a bit, right? Because you can feel very attacked or put upon by somebody that's that's kind of in that trance or whatever, and mm-hmm. it changes it. it. You're turning the love toward them or you're understanding that, that they really kind of just want 
this one thing that we all want, it just seems to, for me, it just seems to just take down the, mm-hmm. the, the charge of it. Uh, it does. And it doesn't mean you can't take strong action, you know, like developing love or compassion is tricky to understand, you know, and people have endlessly asked me if I were to develop more love or compassion or loving kindness and compassion. Does that mean I have to let them move back in? Does that mean I have to give them more money? Does that mean I have to let them hurt me again? Does that mean I have to visit them in jail? Because the reason they're in jail is because they harmed me as a child. Is the re- you know? And the answer is always no. Mm-hmm. Behavior is not mandated through a loving heart. It's like, hopefully we're motivated more by connection than by fear, for example. Mm-hmm. But what we do and how we do it is also context dependent. It depends on discernment, on understanding, on balance. Like what about compassion for ourselves as well as for somebody else, you know? And so people, I think, rightfully get very squeamish when they think the deepening of something like loving kindness or gratitude is going to mean you have to Mm -hmm. say yes or something like that. Yeah, I think it gets confused a little bit with turning the other cheek, Mm -hmm. you know, which I have a problem with myself, you know, so I, Mm -hmm. I I liked the Buddhist idea that you forgive, but you also have to take care of yourself. And if Mm -hmm. that means that that you have to separate yourself from that person, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's the ultimate thing. You have to take care of yourself uh, and do no harm to yourself as well as others. I think there's something in there. It's it's a hard one, though, because it's not, you know, black and white. It's a lot of gray. Um, yeah, which is why we, we explore, you know, and, and we examine and we, we try to understand for ourselves what, what these words mean and what these concepts feel like as, as we practice them. Yeah, I think because of my background and I had a difficult childhood, similarly, you know, it was either or, you know, you either were safe or you were unsafe. And I think, you know, some of the practices and things I've read through Buddhism and through your work and others, it's a little scary because you're kind of stepping on the edge of your comfort zone all the time, but that's sometimes where all the joy and the learning comes from. Um, mm-hmm. But it is, it is difficult for sure. Yeah. I'm watching time and I know you're really busy and I did want to hit faith because that is one of my very favorites. And I think you've talked a little bit in the past about that being a difficult book to title or that there was some pushback on that word. Uh, yeah, I thank you. I, faith is my favorite book that I've written. Um, I, I was wondering, I thought it would be, but I yeah, wasn't sure. Yeah. And it was really hard to write. Uh, it's really basically my faith story, you know, so is my story. The word in the Buddhist tradition that is usually translated as faith means to offer your heart. Mm-hmm. And offering your heart means knowing you have a heart and knowing that offering it is a gift. It's a really big gift. It's not insignificant. Uh, another way of saying it is connection. It's a profound sense of connection to inner strengths that may underlie our fears and personality and so on, and also to a bigger picture of life. It's not the same as belief. It's not the same as dogma. Mm-hmm. There's very beautiful teachings that it's not, it's not like a commodity that you either have or you don't have, and the less you have or you have the wrong kind, you're going to be condemned. It's not like that. It's a process, and the development of the process is enhanced by questioning and by doubt and by wondering and by insisting on seeing the truth for yourself and things like that, you know, that we don't often associate with the word faith. And in fact, when I was writing it, people would say, you know, what are you working on? I'd say a book on faith, and they go, oh, why? <laughs> you know, or exactly. I, I came to Buddhism to get away from all that. And I changed it to crap in the in the book because that's what my editor told me to change it to. So calling it faith was a little bit of a dare. I didn't know what else to call it because in a way it was about redeeming the word. 
And, you know, people would say, you know, call it trust. It's going to seem too religious. And I called it faith and whatever, you know. I had a freelance editor and she said to me one day in interviewing me, she said, what's the opposite of faith? And I said, well, it's not doubt because the right kind of doubt when we're sincere in our questioning, when we're well-motivated really does enhance faith. So she said, well, what's the opposite? So I said, despair. It's like when connection is severed, when it's broken, that's the opposite of faith as I'm using the word. So then she said, well, you know, you're going to have to write a chapter on despair then and your own despair. And I said, I don't really want to, <laughs> let's not go there. But we did. And that's, you know, it was mm -hmm. a difficult book to, to write in many ways, but also important. I was determined to write that book. Oh, it's incredibly honest. I was trying to explain to my husband how much you mean to me. And I said, a lot of it has to do with how honest you are about your journey. And you say the things that we think. And a lot of times we don't want to admit them, right? Because we want to feel like we're this shiny, happy person because of all this. But it, in some ways, it creates additional burden that we know these things. You know, I can't, I can't believe that there's not going to be suffering. I can't believe that there's not going to be another difficulty, but I'm going to live in the moment that I'm in now. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a hard one sometimes, but it, mm -hmm. it is part of the faith, I think, that you yeah. talk about. Yeah. I, I love the concept that you talk about bright faith. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about that? I, I felt that a lot when I started this podcast. <laughs> I, yeah. used, I actually used the phrase, this is bright faith right yeah. here. Yeah. But I'm just curious, could you define that and maybe talk a little bit about that? Sure. So that, that progression of faith, because it's a journey, said to start with what's called bright faith. So bright faith is like inspiration. It's like opening my favorite example of it probably comes from visiting the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, mm -hmm. Ohio. and Love it going to the Bruce Springsteen exhibit. And on the glass of the Bruce Springsteen exhibit was the letter he'd written upon the occasion of Bob Dylan's induction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. So he's describing the first time he ever heard Bob Dylan's music. He was maybe like 15 years old, something like that. Riding in a car with his mother and she was playing the radio and this Bob Dylan song came over the radio. And he said, it was like a giant boot came down and kicked open the door of my mind. Mm -hmm. And then he said, then my mother said, that man can't sing. <laughs> you know, so it's not like we're all inspired and open, exhilarated <laughs> by the same things, but it's something happens so that we feel like we're sitting in a, a dark enclosed room and then the door swings open. Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly what's out there, but it's like, oh, there's a world of possibility out there. Things can emerge. Look at that. It's a bigger world. And sometimes that happens because we listen to Bob Dylan's music for the first time, or <laughs> we see art, or we fall in love, or we meet a teacher, we meet a system of thought that just kind of opens us. And it's, it's so beautiful. It's likened to falling in love, just like exhilarating, opening, all things are possible, but it's only the beginning. And it's also a little tricky. Uh, for one thing, it's not necessarily really landed in our own experience of what's true. We're kind of almost borrowing the energy from the place or the person or something like that. And then, because the energy is so extraordinary, we don't want to do anything that might rock the boat, that might seem to endanger our proximity to the source. So if that source is a system or a group or yeah. a person, a teacher, maybe we get very reluctant to ask questions because we don't want to be troublesome. We don't want to bring up our doubts or uncertainties, which is 
not going to be onward leading. We're going to be stuck. And so bright faith can degenerate into what you know conventionally is called blind faith or mm-hmm. kind of dogmatic faith. But if we begin there and we don't end there, you know, and we're willing to ask questions, to have our own experience, to look at our own experience, then we can move through that to what's called verified faith, where our sense or our worldview or our understanding our values are much more coming from within because we've had that much more clear-eyed experience of things. And again, kind of internalized everything and figured out our own path. Mm-hmm. I love that idea. And I think there's so much in a lot of different spiritual contexts where we get into this guru kind of thing where you can get stuck. And I think it's great the way you talk about that because it's part of a process. And I think sometimes people will throw things away because of Mm -hmm. some of the purveyors or their experience, but it's important to keep going and keep looking and continuing to move on the spiritual path. So, maybe one more question Um, Mm -hmm. So, looking back at all the spiritual leaders and all of the folks that you've interacted with, is there one that comes to mind and a story that might be of interest to the listeners? Uh, Well, I'd probably say my teacher, Deepama, who, um, Deepama is like a nickname, it means Deepa's mother. She was a Bengali woman who suffered tremendously in her life and was an extraordinarily compassionate person. So, the story is that she... I was put into an arranged marriage when she was 12 years old. And Mm. unlike in many of those situations, she and her husband fell deeply in love. And then they didn't have children for about 19 years. And his family kept, they blamed her and they kept urging him to get another wife, which he would not do because he loved her so much. And then they had three children and two of them died. Uh, So Deepa is the surviving daughter. And Uh, They were living in Burma. Her husband was in the civil service in Burma. They were Bengali, but living in Burma. And one day he wasn't feeling well, and he died that night. Oh, no. So she was completely grief-stricken. She developed a heart condition. She couldn't get out of bed. And the doctor came, and it being Burma, he said, you're actually going to die of a broken heart unless you do something about your mind. You should learn how to meditate. And she got up. She went to the meditation center and they say the meditation hall was like up a flight of stairs and she was so weak she couldn't walk up the stairs so she crawled up the stairs and she practiced and whatever happened for her in that period somehow metabolized that grief into compassion and you know I saw her over years meet many kinds of people and I never saw her reject anybody or disdain anybody it was like she knew anybody's life could change so radically on a dime. And so I had met her uh, probably 1971, 72 at the latest. And I spent my year as a student in India, went back to America, came back to India in order to continue studying. And then 1974, I was going back to the States for what I was sure was going to be a very, very, very short trip until I went back to India for the rest of my life. So I went to see her in Calcutta, which was where she was then living to like get her blessing for my very, very short trip back to the States. <laughs> and uh, she said to me, when you go back, you'll be teaching. I said, no, I won't. <laughs> and she said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. She said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. <laughs> and it was ridiculous. I, I can never do that. And then she said two things that were very profound. She said, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. Coming from her, you know, that was quite a thing. And she said, you can do anything you want to do. It's your thinking you can't do it that's going to stop you. Oh, so wow. I left her room and walked down these four flights of stairs thinking, no, I won't. 
it's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. And then lo and behold, you know, I came back and there it was. And, and the rest of my life then followed. Wow. She was right. Mm -hmm. She was absolutely right. I love the line about the suffering. Yeah. 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 I would love to maybe ask you to share a meditation of your choice with the group here. Thank you so much in advance for of your willingness. Course. Do you have a preference for loving kindness practice or? I will Look let that you smile. <laughs> I love, I love it. I love it. Okay, that would we can be do some loving kindness practice. Wonderful. So there are many, many ways of doing this practice. The way I was taught, the way I teach is often through the silent repetition of certain phrases. The phrases are a way of paying attention differently. You're not trying to force a special feeling or emotion, but we're kind of giving a little airtime. It's like if you are in the habit of only pretty much criticizing yourself, see what happens when you wish yourself well. If you're in the habit of looking through certain people, they don't count in your life. We see what happens when we, in effect, look at them and wish them well, silently. So we're going to repeat these phrases, gathering all of our attention behind one phrase at a time. Don't worry about what you're feeling or what you're not feeling. And should your mind wander, which of course it will, don't worry about it, or maybe you fall asleep, that will happen too, perhaps. We get distracted, we get overwhelmed, we forget the phrases, and then you realize that that's the critical moment where we can practice letting go gently. Just bring your attention back to the phrases. You don't have to judge yourself or blame yourself, it's fine. Okay, so the first recipient of loving kindness classically is ourselves. So I'm going to repeat certain phrases. You can repeat them silently. Phrases like, may I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. Live with ease means in the things of day-to-day -day life, like livelihood or family, may not be such a struggle. May I live with ease. May I be safe. Be happy. Be healthy. Live with ease. Then you can bring to mind a friend. Let's start with a friend who's doing pretty well right now. They may not be perfectly happy, but at least in some arena of life, they're enjoying success or good fortune. You get an image of them or say their name to yourself. Get a feeling for their presence. 
and offer the phrases of loving kindness to them. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. Even if the words don't seem perfect, they're carrying the heart's energy, so they're serving us. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. And then a friend who's not doing so well right now, in a kind of compassionate flavoring of loving kindness, can bring them here if someone comes to mind and offer the phrases of loving kindness to them. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, Live with ease. And then all beings everywhere, all people, all creatures, all those in existence, near and far, known and unknown. May all beings be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease.
And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes or lift your gaze and we'll end the meditation. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. And thank you so much for being here and, and just honoring me, but also the listeners with your presence and all your work. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for today. If you want to learn more about Sharon's work, including her upcoming Mala bracelet workshop in January with Satya Jewelry, I signed up for it. Please visit www.sharonsaltzberg.com, but I'll have that link in the show notes as well. I want to thank you all for listening. I hope this episode was helpful. And if it was, please subscribe, drop a review, or share it with your friends and family. That's the best way to get it in the hands of those who may benefit. And if my daughters, Sienna and Sylvia, are listening, I just want you to know how proud I am of you. And I love you so much. Bye now.